There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Mary Pat Kelly is the author of novels including Of Irish Blood, The Best-Selling Galway Bay and Special Intentions. She has also written non-fiction books on subjects as varied as Martin Scorsese and The Rescue of Scott O'Grady from Bosnia. In her life, she has been everything from a nun to a documentary filmmaker to a producer of short films for Saturday Night Live. Born and raised in Chicago, she lives on New York's Upper West Side with her husband, the app developer Martin Shearer who's originally from County Tyrone. Mary was in Ireland recently to speak about her latest book, a novel called Irish Above All, and I was delighted to have her in to talk to the Women's Podcast. Mary, Mary Pat Kelly, thank you so much for coming in. You have a fascinating story to tell. Um, when I say that you were named one of the top 100 Irish Americans, that's quite an achievement considering there are so many Irish Americans. So tell us a bit about your own story, first of all, and then we'll come on to your book, which has got a great title, Irish Above All, which sort of says it all. So what are your Irish connections? Um, I grew up in Chicago, and while I was always very proud of being Irish, it was an Irish-American, Chicago-Irish identity. We really didn't know where we came from in Ireland, but in Chicago, as I we, the best thing you could be in Chicago was 100% Irish. People would actually ask you that. <laughs> and though I'm Mary Pat Kelly, you don't really have to explain, my mother's mother was part German. And when my sister was getting married, her brother-in-law-to-be said to his mother, you know, she's not 100% Irish. And the mother said, don't be rude. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the context I grew up in. Cheer, cheer for old Notre Dame. You know, whether the odds be great or small, we'll win over all. McNamara's band, the greatest in the land. But Irish... Ireland itself was always kind of a this mythical place, and I didn't think you could actually go to Ireland. <laughs> and when my friend and I set off on our around-the-world trip, or at least around-Europe trip in 1969, we didn't even put Ireland on our That's itinerary. That's incredible, considering because, your Irish roots. Exactly, like. but it was like, I want two tickets to Brigadoon or Nirvana or something. We <laughs> headed for London. And, um, Swing in 60s, so exactly, the tail end of it. That's yeah. exactly right. Carnaby Street and the Beatles. And we found out that the cheapest way to stay in, in a, London yeah. to, was to rent a room in someone's house. People would put up uh, index cards at American Express. So called the woman and she said, oh, she'd be delighted that she liked Americans because we paid in cash <laughs> and in advance. So there we go, 22 years old, march up, knock on the door. And she says, girls, I forgot to ask your names. And my friend said, I'm Mary Beth O'Hara. And I said, I'm Mary Pat Kelly. And she said, Irish. And we said, yes, we're Irish. And she wouldn't rent us, slammed the door in our face, which I did not understand because I said in Chicago, being Irish was the greatest thing you could be. 
But I look back, I thank that woman. If she'd invited us in for a cup of tea, we probably would have stayed a week and gone to Paris. This way, I really started to think, well, what does it mean to be Irish? And this was October, and Beckett had just won the Nobel Prize for Literature. And the Abbey was putting on a special performance of Waiting for Godot, and it included a round-trip airfare from London. Very reasonable. So off we went. And when we got there, you could you, you took a city bus. So you went from London over to Dublin, Dublin because of that encounter with that woman. Right. And not exactly. You know, I really thank her because it kind of raised my consciousness when I now I didn't know Samuel Beckett, but it starred Peter O'Toole. Now I certainly hey. knew Peter <laughs> O'Toole, right? So when we got here, it was late at night and it was cold and remember and you could take a city bus from the airport. And we got on the bus, and the bus conductor was standing there. And we'd had trouble with the bus conductors in London because you always were supposed to know where you were going, and they would crank out this ticket. So up comes, down the aisle comes this bus conductor, same uniform, same machine, ready to crank out the ticket. We're digging through our purses, and he stopped, and he said, would you ever relax, girls? You're home. And (laughs) in Chicago, we haven't saying you have the map of Ireland on your face. And my friend really did, red hair, freckles. And the next day when we went out on the street, we realized he was right because the faces were the faces I'd grown up with. And then I went to church and I said to my friend, this is the 10 o'clock mass at Queen of All Saints. (laughs) And then we headed out. And it was very hard to rent a car on a Sunday in Dublin. But, of course, the desk clerk had a friend, brought a Morris Mini automatic. And I remember getting in and trying the controls and saying, should I watch out for anything? And he said, other cars. (laughs) (laughs) So off we went. And of course, I fell in love. It was so beautiful. And went to my first pub. And people were entertaining each other. And this man stood up and he was reciting Dangerous Dan McGrew and the lovely Lady Lou. And after every verse, someone bought him a pint. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's about 30 verses in that poem. (laughs) And he went down near me and he looked up and he said, Jesus falls the first time. And then I handed him a napkin. He said, Veronica wipes the face of Jesus. So that's when I realized that all the great Irish writers, James Joyce, the rest of them, they were just writing down. They were only just copy taking, just transcribing what they saw. They they don't deserve the credit, really. They were just good transcribers. And even, you know, I said, yes, I will. Yes, that's Nora Barnacle. I mean, James Joyce just wrote it down. So that was the beginning for me. And I said, oh, I have to find out. There's more to being Irish than turning the river green on St. Patrick's Day. And that was the start. And by by this other crazy coincidence, I had gotten to know Martin Scorsese. I was studying to be a nun. I wrote him a letter. He wrote back to me. I left Sorry, after why five, did you write to Martin Scorsese? I was studying film. And when you're studying film at a little college in Indiana – you don't have all those many resources. And I found an article about this new phenomenon, film schools, and this student who had made this interesting film. I wrote to him. He wrote back to me. He was very interested in his own Catholicism, as we see in his yeah. work. And I met him for the first time coming back from the trip to Ireland, and I was full of enthusiasm. And he said, well, that's what you should do. You should tell stories about Ireland, which I did. So it's all thanks to Martin Scorsese. Because he was exploring his Italian-American roots. Because in 19- So he was encouraging you to do the same. Exactly. And would he have been a similar age to you then or exactly. slightly older? He's two years older and right. one day birthday different. God. And did you keep in touch with him yep. all this time? Mm-hmm. We still are friends. That's still incredible. in touch. And you know, his new movie is called The Irishman. 
So that's amazing. So you did go off and you did tell stories. I did. So I began. How did then, it start? It started really with first of all, I went to I went to film school, which was an incredible experience. NYU Film School. It was very hands on. But then I realized when I tried to tell my Irish stories, I didn't have a lot of information, really. And at that time in New York, you could go to graduate school for free. And there was a wonderful program at the City University of New York. They didn't have Irish studies, but they had a professor who was willing to teach us if I got the books. I remember going to the consulate and explaining that we would be studying Celtic literature, and of course, he said, well, Celtic literature. So I went back and forth, and then I finally said, is it ever pronounced Celtic? And he said, I believe the basketball team in Boston. So that's where I started from. But then this professor was fantastic. We got the books, and I discovered all these amazing women, Queen Maeve, and, and that she was took lovers and led armies. And I said, we didn't hear about women like that at Marywood School for Girls, believe me. (laughs) So that started me, and I really had this passion. But the problem was that I still didn't know where the Kellys were were really from. I mean, the first time someone said to me, what county are your people from? I said, Chicago. So it only took me 40 years, but I finally did find out where the Kellys came from. So where did they come from? Barnum which is about five miles west of Galway. It was a fishing village at the time called Freeport. And my great-great-grandmother's name was Honora Keeley. Honora. Honora. It's a great name, isn't it? Great. I love that name. And she married Michael Kelly. And as I was doing the research, I realized my father had a cousin who lived to be 107. Now, she was a nun. Nuns run through my story. Okay. And... I hadn't really asked her many questions about the family, but when I did, she knew that great-grandmother. She didn't know where she was from in Ireland, but she knew her name and her maiden name. And I agree, I love the name Honora. Mm. So I kind of went on a uh, journey to find Honora. And when I did was when I was able to kind of write that. I had done other things. I worked in the media, but telling her story and telling the Irish-American story through my family became my passion. So you did that through novels rather right. than taking the sort of factual approach? Yes, I did. I had done documentaries about um, when I worked in the media and when I was working for Good Morning America, I met John Hume and Pat Hume. And it was I was not able to get them on the regular media. If This was 1976, yeah. and people were not interested in mm. a moderate view. They weren't interested in Northern Ireland very much anyway, but certainly not someone that was talking about nonviolence and peace. But I did my own documentary uh, called To Live for Ireland, and then um, still trying to present the North in a different way, discovered the story of the 300,000 American troops that were there in World War II. So I did documentaries. But what I have done in this book is take some of the information I got and fictionalize it. Okay. So I can so have a little fun. tell me about Michael and Honora. So what, what was their journey to America? And uh, Honora, they, were, they married young, as people did. And I was very... What, what year are we talking uh, around? She, uh, Honora was born in, 19, in 1822. Okay. And the way I really found her story was when... The Irish government, through the FAST scheme, put the church records online, which was fantastic. You could go to these family history centers, and I found that she was born in this fishing village. And when I actually went on the spot, the woman who lived next door came out, 
and it told me the story that this had been a fishing village, that everyone was evicted on the same night in 1847. Mm. The landlord burned the cottages down, and his idea was to make a seaside resort. Now, this is in the teeth of the great starvation when there are bodies on the ground. But as the woman next door told me, he never was able to do it, and she, she, her voice got very quiet, and she said, from that day to this, no one has ever built on this land. And I thought, oh, wow, the spirits of the people are kind of keeping it as a memorial. But then she said a great thing to me. She said, but I wondered what happened to them. And I said, oh, yeah, I wonder what happened. And then I thought, wait a minute. I'm what happened to-, <laughs> to them, you know. And we. And it was very interesting because she said, Irish people know a lot about the emigration, but they don't know as much about what really happened to their neighbors, actually, when they went to America. Mm-hmm. So they went off, the Michael and Tenora. Now, I, this is giving away a little bit. So if people haven't read Galway Bay, don't listen. Okay. But he died. So she was left a widow with five children and somehow had to get them get out and get to America. And she did. She did, yeah. So uh, she went on a boat, she, she went, she she went, went to land. I had to make up some of this or I yeah. had to fill in. And I think she came in through New Orleans because they came up the Mississippi right, yeah. through the canal yeah, yeah. and landed in Chicago. Yeah. And in the story, I have someone that has gone ahead because that was the usual thing. Somebody went ahead, they worked mm. on the railroad or on the canal mm. and they sent the money back. And I loved the idea of New Orleans. New Orleans was the third biggest port of immigration in the States. It's not thought of in the same way that Boston or New York or even Canada, but there was a great Irish community in New Orleans. And and tell us, I mean, I know you had to fictionalize some aspects of it, but where did you pick up the actual true story of what happened to her and what continued on? Well, this cousin knew her, right? actually knew her, because she was born, this cousin's sister... Eregina, was born in 1889, and Honora didn't die until 1899. So she had some of the stories. She had a life, didn't she, for that time? She almost lived in three three centuries. So she remembered stories. Now, she said they wouldn't talk much about the actual suffering that they went through, but she gave me a sentence that I used as the prologue to the first book, which was, we wouldn't die, and that annoyed them. (laughs) <laughs> and the idea was survival. And, for and she me, was with her five kids. Five kids. Yeah. That then one of them, Steve, one of them, Patrick, was my great-grandfather. Right. His son, Michael, then is my father's father. Okay. Another one, Stephen, his son was Ed Kelly, who became the mayor of Chicago. Right. And that's who this book is about. Okay. So we go right up to, I mean, from Honora all the way to her great-grandson or her grandson becoming the mayor of Chicago. Chicago. Um, which is pretty incredible to have pretty come incredible, from that. and the thing that was different. So he was your grandfather. He was he was my my grandfather was her son, great yeah. grandson. Yeah. Okay, right. But Ed Kelly was actually a first cousin of my grandfather because, but they were very close. the The brothers, their families, they mm. really stayed very close, and. Um, she had. I sometimes think this one woman surviving is responsible for thousands of people being alive mm-hmm. today. 
And Ed Kelly had an incredible life. And Chicago was different than the East. The Irish rose very quickly in Chicago. It didn't have the overlay. And they were extremely proud of being Irish. There was none of, sometimes part of the story in this book is about Joe Kennedy being uncomfortable with being Irish. And, uh, of course, and the kind of shame around it, or the, the kind shame, of well, the, the stigma, yeah. and also his father-in-law, Honey Fitz, was your typical Irish politician. And I think Joe Kennedy, who went to Harvard and tried yeah. to kind of imitate the wasp, kind of, yeah. Right, yeah. and yet Kelly, the, the, I mean, they found nothing was better than being Irish. And although one of the stories I tell in the book, and is true, when my father, who went to college and was a, a pilot during World War II wanted to go into politics, Ed Kelly discouraged him. He mm. said, it's a dirty business, Mike, and we don't have to do it anymore. Yeah. And I have a scene in the book, which is imagined, where my father, Ed Kelly, Jack Kennedy, and Joe Kennedy all meet together. And Joe's determined that his son is going to go into politics. And Ed is discouraging him. Why not be a writer? Why not yeah. be a poet? Why not be something that doesn't require mm. the double dealing that politics really did? Green and Black's Velvet Edition range brings a variety of signature flavors, introducing a smoother, velvety taste with a premium chocolate experience, and all with our Green and Black's promise of the finest ingredients and ethically sourced cocoa. So you've sort of dedicated your life. If you don't mind me asking how old you are now, is that an okay I'm, question No, that's to okay, ask? yeah, 73. Okay, so you've, you've pretty much dedicated, since you were in your 20s, your life to telling these stories. Yes, that's And your true. latest book's called Irish Above All, and that's kind of the end of it, the third in a trilogy. Right. Of, of this kind of fictionalized account, but very much based on your based own on, And I family. made sure that all the history was correct. There's a lot about Franklin Roosevelt in this book because Ed Kelly became mayor when the mayor of Chicago was assassinated in an attempt on Franklin Roosevelt's Mm. life. So the first sentence of this book is, I saved Franklin Roosevelt's life and killed the mayor of Chicago with two words, move closer. (laughs) Because the heroine is a photographer, the cousin of Ed Kelly, granddaughter of Honora, and she's taking this picture that Cermak wants to show his connection to Roosevelt. Mm. But instead, he's standing in the wrong place when the assassin fires a bullet. And I, that's all true. You said that you trained or studied, a trained is probably the wrong word, to be a nun. I did. Um, we kind of glossed over that then. Why did you go away from uh, the nunhood? Well, I entered, when I uh, graduated from high school, of a, in a class of 100, 14 became nuns. And I, isn't that amazing? I heard an interesting statistic. In 1962, there were 200,000 American nuns. From 1968 to 72, 90,000 left. So I think I was, you know, John Kennedy asked not what you can do for your country, Pope John, the way we were raised. And I admire the nuns. I admire the mission. It brought me into a world of civil rights and uh, working with teaching young women. It was wonderful. But there came a moment where I realized that it was not the life for me, as many, many others did. Mm. And we had a wonderful mother superior that said that was providence, that the Holy Spirit wanted all these women trained, and then they wanted to go off into the world and bring the insights and the teaching so she was okay with it. She, she was okay. They, was they, I was in the Sisters of Providence, and they really do believe in Providence, that what happens is happening for a reason, mm-hmm. and 
it's part of a bigger plan. But then how do you think your Irishness or your Irish roots um, have shaped you as a woman, as a woman in, in the world and kind of in what you've done? Well, I found that's why it was such a revelation for me. And it, actually, the second book of Irish Blood takes uh, Nora through a similar journey in discovering ancient Irish literature, these fantastic women characters that were not taught to us. I mean, and I find a lot of women in Irish literature written by men mm. to be victims and kind of, uh, you don't see the strength. They might be strong, but they're always being like, uh, uh, I heard Juno and the Peacock recently described as magnificent women and feckless men, you know, so it, even when she she's doing something wonderful, she's doing it in the context of mm. real conflict where I found these women characters amazing and the Irish women I met here amazing. And when I came in 1969, it was still in the Constitution that women could not work outside of the home. Well, And Mary look Pat- at the changes. It's still in the Constitution. Is it? They haven't taken that no, out? No, not yet. Wow. Women, it, now it doesn't exactly say they can't, it just says that women by virtue of her place in the home, so it, it alludes to women as being their primary thing should be at home working. So it's kind of amazing. I'm waiting for someone to take them to court to say, well, you saying that I should be in the home, you should look after me. Right, exactly. Kind of what kind but of a home? I would like yet. to see my we, home. We've got another more important thing out of the Constitution in the meantime, as you know, earlier this right, year, right. or last year, but um, that's still there, so we have to work to get that out. Good. Um, and also the other thing that would have been in place Place when you came was the fact that if you were in the civil service, That's you had one. to leave your job um, when you got married. And that you weren't changed. Allowed to be. Yes, that's yeah. changed. Yeah. Thank goodness. And also you, you marital rape, that has also changed because that was legal as well until, you know, whatever and, year. And, right. And yes. So my point is that I watched while the women of Ireland stood up for their rights and accomplished incredible things. And not to mention Mary Robinson and Mary McAleese, both splendid women. And so I feel that the Irish women that I have known and the Irish writers now, women writers, present a much different picture of women, a a very vibrant, um, energetic, I mean, not without problems and the tragedies of life, but certainly not victims. No, exactly. Um, So have you been over since? Like, was 69 the kind of one time you went or did did it start? No, it started, in fact, I laugh (laughs) because... Irish people always ask you if you're American, is this your first time in Ireland? <laughs> and I think if I ever said, well, I think this is number 205. Really? So you kept coming kept back. Kept coming back, yeah. So was it kind of a love affair you got? It was it? a love affair. Also, I was working on these documentaries. I got very involved with the SDLP, not only documenting them, but you know, attending elections. Okay, so in elections. the North, you, you, you got in very North, involved. Right. In the North, yeah. And then when I discovered this connection with Galway, I'm um, working with the Karna Immigrant Center in Connemara, I'm one of their ambassadors. So it was kind of serendipitous and people were very hospitable and interested in Mm. showing me. And then, but this odd feeling as an Irish American, when you actually stand on the piece of ground that is really your family place. So it's not this kind of general love of Ireland. It's this is the place. It does something to you. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because Irish people can often, I don't know if you've experienced it at all in your all your travels here, people can be a little bit sniffy about this Irish-American thing. Oh. And they sort of see it as a bit of a joke sometimes that, they, you know, we're walking down NASA Street and you see all these people and they're going into their, to buy all their sort of shillelaghs and all this sort of stuff. And I think sometimes a bit unfairly, well, actually, most of the time unfairly, that we kind of 
don't appreciate what you just said there, which is what, what that feeling is to stand on that ground that was your place of origin. You know, it's a huge thing. And really, it's only been possible in the last 10 or 15 years, even less than that, with the internet and, be, you know, 24 and me being able to do your genealogy and get your DNA. So the shillelaghs and getting your family crest, that was as close as people could come. Exactly, but yeah. now they're able to get the real thing and it's a huge, yeah. huge And I think people experience. still just, are, they they find it kind of amusing that how many generations have you have gone by, but you, I mean, even looking at you, like you say, you've got those green eyes and, you know, you have such an affinity with this place that it's not fictional, that it's not a kind of made up invented feeling, that it's very real. And also it's interesting. It's been the last 30 or about 30 years that Irish Americans have really kind of look to their Irish roots in a different way. I mean, we have these Irish festivals now. Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 150,000 people come through the four days of this Irish festival. And yes, there's T-shirts, Kiss Me, I'm Irish and everything, but there's also wonderful music, there's drama, and it's spread out throughout the country. And I think... Now, maybe when Irish Americans have reached a certain point, they want to find out more about themselves. Mm. I think you'll find out Irish Americans naming their children Siobhan and Connor (laughs) and trying to make that connection. Because in America, you can be many things. Mm. Like I, in fact, you mentioned the title of the book. I found a letter from this nun and she said, I'm going to tell you where all the bodies are buried. So I thought this was family secrets. No, it was the cemeteries. <laughs> so she tells all the different, and she ends with, we're Americans, yes, Chicagoans, of course, but Irish above all. Yeah. And in America, you can have multi-layered identities, but the Irish part of it is really crucial. But it is interesting talking about that multi-layered identity and immigration, considering Trump, because, you know, when you think think about your story and all your family coming over and being given this massive opportunity to become like mayor of Chicago and all those things. And now to see the language and the rhetoric being spoken about immigrants, what what do you think? I think it's absolutely appalling. And I think Irish Americans have a big, and they have been speaking out because nobody was poorer than we were. Nobody faced more difficulties and um, the contributions that we've made and the contributions that immigrants are making right now, it's it's appalling. I feel it's some kind of a of an evil dream and I hope we're going to wake up from it. What did James Joyce say? History is a nightmare I want to wake up from. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of you in Chicago having had that beautiful night, which I imagine you were there for when Barack got um, Absolutely. You know, elected and, you know, to go from that to where we are. I really don't understand it. I mean, Michelle Obama's book is wonderful, and she talks so a little bit about, and maybe it's about resilience, and I was part of the Women's March um, both times, the first one in January right after the inauguration and the second one, and there is a mobilization, and I think the Me Too movement is stronger because of it. It's almost as if, actually, Special Intentions, which was a novel I wrote about being in the convent, I found out that intention has a secondary meaning, which means the healing of a wound. And for a wound to heal, it has to be exposed. And unfortunately, what we're seeing in our country is not something that was just created. It's a, it's a small percentage, but they're empowered right now. But I think it means that everyone must really speak out. And I think art is a place to, to resist too. And uh, people are mobilized. It's, it's very, very uh, 
worrying. And it seems to be around the world, except for Ireland. I know. Ireland We're is going moving the other forward. Way. <laughs> it's fantastic. I mean, we loved it when Leo Vandegger brought his partner to meet yeah. Mike Pence. You know, it was fantastic. <laughs> I know. You must have loved watching that. Just amazing. Without saying a word, it's just the symbolism of it was just fantastic. What about your own um, relationships and children and family and stuff? Because you're married to a Tyrone man. I'm married to a Tyrone man. And he's an app developer. I think you picked a yes. good one there. That's good business he, to be in. <laughs> yes, it is. And he was a photographer here actually um, for the papers here. He worked on the Irish Independent Martin Sharon. And um, yes, we got married. I was 40. I really didn't think I'd ever, frankly, I never thought thought I would meet a man that would really be happy at who I am. And that I would, I didn't realize that unconsciously I was thinking you had to kind of cut yourself, what kind of to pattern to meet, to be a wife and what that meant. And Martin had a fantastic mother who was a teacher and was a very progressive woman. At, in 1920, was won a scholarship to the Sorbonne from this little town in Northern Ireland. So he was very, very encouraging. And and had he come over? Uh, he had come over before. Okay. Yeah, I always say I met him at a concert. Actually, there was a singer, Patty Riley, but he was singing in a bar. And um, no, it's been a great. Now, we did try very hard. It's kind of a... Of a in America, they people talk about their fertility journey, and um, we did try very hard, and it didn't happen, which was sad. Um, but I have many nieces and nephews, and one of the things I did like in the old Irish literature was this whole concept of the foster mother mm. and the, the influence that a woman can have on a child, even if it's not her biological child. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. I remember when before I had I do have two kids, but before my relationship with my nieces and nephews was so important and strong. And it really used to annoy me that you know people would downgrade it as if it wasn't couldn't be really also very powerful. You can have that unique bond. You can have a, a different relationship as well. And I think it's really important that, you know, not the only relationship isn't with your own flesh and blood children that you can develop those relationships with other. I think it really children. is important. However, I've been watching, my niece has three little ones, two, four, six, and nothing is more magical and a miracle than watching their development. And I think, you know, I said if we lived in a correct society, there'd be people standing on corners handing out medals to every mother that walked by. (laughs) And now, you know, now these same mothers hold big jobs and are, it's amazing. Women it's, are amazing. Yeah, I, I agree. And, but tell me about his apps. I want to know what he's into and whether, you know, he's making loads of money out of it. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, right now, he's working very hard on my Facebook page and doing okay. all the things he's that your I don't really know. But he had, assistant. he did these, he was doing quizzes oh, okay. about Gaelic football. Really? And then cricket, he got some huge like likes on a cricket app because he connected up with someone in India and he got like one night, he got like, you know, 15,000 likes. So what he loves about the internet, he was a photographer here and about 10 years ago, he developed this disease that means he has to be in a wheelchair. Mm. But the internet has opened up the world to him and I'll hear him laughing to somebody in Thailand and the next day in Serbia because, and there's all these app developers throughout the world so one of these days he'll hit on the app that everybody wants so that's incredible but he's got it he makes a living out of it yeah 
He does, Fantastic, yeah, and yeah. You, you'll get the one. That's you'll get be the one that'll one that's going to get right. you get your castle in Connemara, right? Exactly, or Galway exactly, or exactly. So you're over here now promoting the, your latest book, Irish Above All. You're going to head off to Belfast, to Connemara, um, to Derry, right? To Derry as well. Have you watched Derry Girls at all? Uh, I it was very funny. <laughs> you have to save it all up for a treat because it's it's wonderful. It just the last episode uh, was last night actually, but um, so was that the one with Clinton came to Derry or yes? Yeah, yeah. I, I I'm looking forward to. Seen that one, yeah. <laughs> but um, tell me now, what are your hopes then for the future? I mean, you've, you've obviously got much more to do because you seem like that kind of person. I actually would like to, I've been approached about writing a nonfiction book of how Ireland has changed over the 50 years since I've been coming, which would be, which would be very interesting to me, particularly uh, focusing on the women. So maybe I'll start it out when they take that out of the constitution. The, uh, Women in the home, home thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. we'll see. Because we'll hold our breath. I, when you write about 1916 and you see it, all the what the women did, and then to be betrayed like that, I mean, yeah. No, but a, that seems to be one step forward, two steps back. But we keep stepping. Yeah, we have to keep stepping. We, we keep stepping. Well, listen, the book is, as I said, Irish Above All by Mary Pat Kelly. It's the third in a trilogy, so people Correct. can read Galway Bay and then of Irish blood, of Irish blood, and then Irish Above All. It's been really interesting talking. Really to nice you. talking. I hope to you enjoy you. the rest of your trip. Thank you very and much. Keep in touch with us. Thank you. I would like to. And that's it for today. Thanks to my guest, Mary Pat Kelly. You can find her book, Irish Above All, in all good bookshops now. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And you can always find us on irishtimes.com. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast, or you can email us on the Women's Podcast at irishtimes.com. If you like what we do, then please do head along to iTunes and give us a review and tell all your friends about it. The podcast is produced by myself, Roisin Ingle, and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.